New York. New York. We're in Manhattan. I heard some people talking shit and they were like, I mean, I didn't move to New York to live in Brooklyn. Whatever. Here's the thing about Manhattan. They're trash on the streets, yo. But that's true in Brooklyn. Here's the thing. Alleys. Chicago has a lot of them. Actually, Chicago has the most alleys in the world. Trivia fact for you coming at you from our amazing Morgan. Thank you. Oh my God, yes, of course. All right, what are we doing? What are we so doing? Why are we in New York? We're in New York. To join the Rockettes. <laughs> I don't think you're tall enough, baby. <laughs> I don't want to be mean. My, but my like... friend who used to live in New York, she was like, New York was kind of cool because sometimes you would have days where you'd be like, why is there a giant line of women over six feet tall? And it was like Rockettes auditions. <laughs> That's the thing that the city that never sleeps can give you. Yeah, but... um, We're here for RWA, Romance Writers of America. The annual conference. But we're not actually here for RWA. What are we here for? We're here for the Golden Hearts Workshop. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk tomorrow. We are going to talk tomorrow. panel. What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about what romance podcasting is. But I hope that we can connect with some writers, have them guest on our show, mm-hmm. network. We are networking so hard, y'all. Isabel and I will be spooning tonight. We sure will. I'm a little bit gassy because I've had some champ. That's great. So we've had an evening of RWA under the old... Elastic waistband, thoughts, reflections. Writers are a hard group to network with because by and large writing is an isolating experience. Morgan, I don't want to, I don't want to like out you on the podcast or anything, but it seems like you've become sort of like disinterested in the genre, right? <laughs> certainly like it's base premise that it's feminist, which is certainly debatable. <laughs> and like basically all of it, like HEA can't stand, the center cannot hold, maybe romance is terrible. And like, I've been getting that vibe from you lately, but not when it comes to certainly the 70s and 80s which is like your jam and I get it and I've been fighting against the feeling I don't think you're wrong about my vibe but I think what I see is a great deal of potential and I think I see this genre as particularly ripe for shouldering itself off. Like, everyone had a very specific idea of romance before Kathleen Woodawis came along. Certainly. And I think that excitement is still palpable around her text some 40 years later, this idea of doing something totally different. But, like, I overheard a conversation tonight in the hotel bar about polyamory and, like, how can we possibly make polyamory work in romance? And it was very dismissive, and I think it spoke to a lack of empathy And I think it also spoke to a lack of imagination. And if you're a human being, a lack of empathy, I find difficult to reconcile. And if you're a writer, I find a lack of imagination in conjunction with a lack of empathy, especially difficult to reconcile. But I am still optimistic because I do firmly believe that there are writers out there because I do read fan fiction and because I do read romance. I firmly believe there are writers out there that are doing interesting, exciting things. I don't want to give too much away, but I read a genuinely laugh out loud, funny contemporary romance written in the last five years recently that kind of played with those ideas. I think a lot of people want to say down with the patriarchy and flouting the patriarchy and aren't willing to interrogate the ways in which their own work is propping up the patriarchy. I think that's one of the things that especially contemporary romance writers and contemporary romance critiquers have sort of
sort of taken now for granted is that like romance is inherently feminist and romance is inherently doing something that's good work. And I think, yeah, pleasure is political, but like there's a lot of bad pleasure that is also political. Yeah. And like coming to RWA is always really difficult for me because I want to buy into the premise that romance is inherently feminist and that romance is inherently anti-patriarchy in the sense that it's always privileging a woman's perspective or a female perspective or a non-masculine perspective. And like, that's just actually not true. And like, RWA makes me face that fact in a way that like is deeply uncomfortable for me most of the time. I think that we should be, while it is difficult and while it is painful, that is the plight of feminism. Feminism isn't supposed to be like fun and sisterhood, rah-rah, every day, all day, buy your underpants, buy your bumper stickers. That's not what it's about. It's Mm -mm. about work. And it's more importantly, it's about collectivism. Mm -hmm. And I think it is important that we've reached a point in feminism when we can be like, it is not enough to say pleasure is feminism. I think that's a beautiful point to be at, but I think it's also a signifier that there's real work to be done. And I would task the most feminine of all genres at like taking up that mantle and really interrogating like ask yourself what is the patriarchy because patriarchy is feminine monogamy patriarchy is heterosexuality patriarchy is whiteness and like what are you actually doing to dismantle those ideas yeah it can never be enough like getting off on like consent isn't enough anymore like it's a very low bar that is considered sexy for sure people are like I love this it was so sexy it showed consent is sexy and I know that I'm guilty of that but it's like of course consent is sexy (laughs) and consent has always been sexy because consent is dirty talk consent is dirty talk consent is also also like checking in, which means it's communication between two partners. And ultimately that's the fantasy, right? Right. Where you have a man who cares about your feelings. Oh my God. should be like baseline. Right? What a low baseline to clear though. Like I had a guy friend who, a straight guy friend who is like, I think I might be polyamorous because I really care about all these women I'm sleeping with. And I'm like, you fucking should (laughs) I'm like, are you a decent human? Yeah. Like I don't care if you don't like want to like introduce them to your mother like you should care about them as human beings certainly as you would about any human being and I think Joanna Lindsay Mm. Kathleen Woody Wiss Mm. Judith Ivory (laughs) your babe they are problematic yes but I do think they're putting it all out on the floor I think they're pretty fucking punk rock even though there are problems that are societal and can be attributed to their given moments historically certainly they're being fucking punk rock and I think it would be dope if people in romance showed other kinds of pleasure or like embraced the fact in totality that it is a genre about pleasure and didn't feel the need to be like realistic, right? Could just portray the fantasy. Because if you're fixated on realism, then what you're actually creating is a pedagogy. And if you're creating a pedagogy, like interrogate what the fuck you're teaching. Because like teaching a fantasy is teaching a lie. Teaching a fantasy can be teaching a lie, yeah. If you're gonna be real, be real in all the ways. And that's one of the things that I actually wanted to ask a writer this evening where it's like there's always the obstacle at the end and like the third quarter of a novel where it's like suddenly the hero does something or like the lie that he's been perpetrating is revealed or like he does a really douchey thing. Yes. And we as readers find the pleasure and like the recompense. But like how the 
fuck do you write a recompense good enough? Because like not all of them are good enough. And I'm like, sometimes I read a romance novel and I was like, oh boy, like you wrote yourself into a corner. He's a bad dude. You need to dump him. Ending up with him feels like a tragedy. Yeah. And like, that's a question that I have for writers where it's like, you know that you have to write this third act, like whiff of death is what it would be called in a Disney movie. In Disney scholarship. In Disney scholarship, it's called whiff of death. But Don't ask us how we know. The there book, was this whole thing. The book is called Save the Cat. And it's, it's ha- actually really good. It's actually incredibly good. And it's like how to write beat for beat in a 92 minutes, which is basically how it's a, a romance novel operates. It's a screenwriting Bible. And because it it's a screenwriting Bible, I mean, like think about movies and romance novels. Right. There's so much like overlap. There's a, such a big middle circle in that. Thing. <laughs> oh my God. I like, actually, I had this thought earlier at the bar with someone else. Yeah, where you it's talked like, about like, if you see a gun in the first act, it has to go off by the third act. Right. That's Chekhov. Save the cat. Yeah. Not only is that save the cat, but the thing that I was talking about in the bar was like, I don't reread capital L literature books, but I do reread romances sometimes. And I reread them in the same way that I rewatch a film that I love. And like, I think that there's something in the Van diagram of film and how it overlaps with romance in particular. Like I have reread A Week to be Wicked by Tessa Dare, I don't know, like 11 times, but I've also read Persuasion by Jane Austen eight times at least. Yeah. And like I revisit that text in the same way that I revisit Star Wars or like the same way that I revisit The Godfather. Or Parks and Rec. Or Parks and Rec or The Office. Office. Yeah. It's like I do this thing when I'm like knitting or cooking or like whatever. It's like it's comforting, Mm -hmm. but it's also like I pick up something new. I have more sympathy for like Angela, which feels weird and awkward. I've started listening to those old early texts as I go to sleep, like choosing a chapter from Persuasion or choosing a chapter from Jane Eyre mm-hmm. that is especially like relaxing a chapter or two, putting them on my podcast playlist and going to sleep listening to those texts. Yeah, I get it. And like people rewatch The West Wing. People rewatch Frasier in the same way. Oh, yeah. And I think that there's something beautiful in the overlap and something special about romance that transcends other genres. It's like you don't revisit capital L literature and maybe not even sci-fi or fantasy. You certainly don't. In the same way. Yeah. But it's because there's something about craft that can carry you through. But I think craft creates such an interesting playpen. And I think people are getting hung up on the ideas rather than the structure. Yep. Like happily ever after is a part of the structure, but maybe rethink the structure. Maybe the happily ever after isn't a heteronormative marriage. Right. Maybe the happily ever after isn't a monogamous committed relationship. Maybe the happily ever after is... Getting along with your mother. Yeah, yeah. Or it's like getting comfortable with yourself. Yeah. To go into hot and bothered. Mm-hmm. She has this in her first episode, conflict about the happily ever after. Yes. And she comes to the conclusion that her friend believes that he doesn't deserve a happily ever after and that's why he's having a hard time writing one because Mm -hmm. he's created himself as the hero. Which, by the way, Mm -hmm. if you're a romance novelist and you're not writing yourself as the central character in your text, why did you come to this party? (laughs) Quit acting like you're not doing it. And so, anyways, she has this moment where she's like, you do deserve love. But maybe what they actually deserve is self-love. Maybe it's not the love of another human human being. And maybe when she talks about like, I genuinely believed at points in my life that I was single and that I needed to reconcile that. It's like, maybe it's not a reconciliation. Maybe it's like an embracing. Maybe it's like, 
I live alone. Or maybe it's like, I live alone for now. Or maybe it's like, I live mostly alone with many small relationships. Like there's so many different ways to have a happily ever after. For sure. Or I'm married and he lives across the universe. So I have multiple other partners that I care about. Or like, you know, I'm alone for now, but I have like 11 dogs and I like volunteer at a rescue. And every day that I see a new puppy, I learn something about myself and like how to like forgive or love or open up. And I think like the thing about romance that I love is like it has very broad shoulders. There's so many doors that you can walk through. There's so many subgenres. There's so many niches. So many doors unopened. Right. And like it pains me. It actually it's like a physical pain. I am confronted with a genre that is like, I don't want to say afraid to take risks, but I don't know a better way to say it. Here's the thing. I love reading romance because I know it's gonna have a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I get frustrated by that halfway through because I realize a positive outcome is gonna be this relationship. Right. And that's not even the best positive outcome. Exactly. And so people who say the happily ever after is the most important part are actually saying the monogamous committed relationship is the most important part. Think about saying that about your life. Mm -hmm. Think about saying the monogamous committed relationship is the most important part. That's why I do not believe that the happily ever after as it exists now is the crux of romance because that is not the crux of human experience. Then the question is, is romance about human experience or is it about fantasy? If your fantasy, if I looked you in the eye and I was like, your ultimate fantasy is a monogamous committed relationship, Mm -hmm. how would you feel about your life? I feel incomplete. Yeah, that's not a fantasy. It's not a a fantasy fantasy that I can buy into, right? But a fantasy is actually, I would argue, the stuff in the middle. The fantasy is the journey there and back again in The Hobbit, right? Totally. We're changed forever. Fantasy is like the Shire was raised. Yeah, exactly. Like that's the fantasy, the adventure, Mm -hmm. the new experience. That's the fantasy. I don't disagree, but I think there's like and the fantasy that hold on the fantasy is having an adventure knowing that it'll work out. Yeah. I think the knowing how it works out is my problem. Mm -hmm. In Jane Austen's times, it ends in a marriage. In our time now, it ends in a monogamous relationship. So like even happily for now isn't something that like you can countenance. I mean, sometimes it feels appropriate. That's the thing. Like I don't want to discount it entirely. But I don't. Sometimes it feels like really earned. And then sometimes it feels shoehorned. And I don't like it because our hero did not do enough. To me, I feel like persuasion, it ends in a marriage. But I think it really ends in her being like. I get to go on a ship and travel the horn. But also her being like. Fuck I my could parents. take it or leave it. Yeah. Like, I'm okay. And that's the thing. I know who I am and I choose to share my life. Right. And she even says it to him where it's like, if I had gone with you at 19, we would have had each other, but I would have felt so fucking shitty yeah. about my decision because yeah. of my family, because I didn't know who I was and yeah. everything else. And that's so important, right? Yeah. Like, Anne has to live without him for nine years. Yeah. And she becomes... I think her whole self without him. When she realizes she doesn't need him when he returns. Right. She's sad, certainly, because it's like a love deferred and a love dead, but like she has a good life without him. Exactly. She sees him mooning over another girl Mm -hmm. and she's still able to have her adventures and like these experiences and find a new self-identity. Yeah. Like 
that's what's really a happily ever after. I agree. And I hate to be so Oprah, but it is about falling in love with yourself. And maybe not falling in love with yourself, but falling in comfort with yourself. I think falling in comfort or like forgiving yourself for whatever the thing is that you're holding over yourself or like, you know, rediscovering yourself or like whatever it is, like the Diane Lang version movie of this is. The patriarchy is there all the fucking time. Like these people who come out and they talk about patriarchy, patriarchy, patriarchy are actually servicing the patriarchy because they don't realize like it's there all the time. The patriarchy is sinister in that way because it's the air we breathe. It's the magazines we read. It's the airplane seats we fit into or don't. It's everywhere. It's inescapable. I had a moment when I was talking to my coworker. So I think about body hair a lot Mm -hmm. and how I selectively remove it Mm -hmm. as regular (laughs) listeners know. And so I shave my legs because I've decided I like that sensation. And I also really like to wear super tight pants. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes irritating when I don't shave my legs. And I also like how smooth it feels. I don't notice a difference when I shave my armpits. So I have elected to not shave my armpits. And then also I have a full on, I mean, it's a seventies bush now because it's the summertime. Once we hit October, it's going to be a full on colonial Williamsburg bush. (laughs) But it's just because I'm a beach goer. Hello, Martha Washington. I don't want like a kid to see my pubic hair and then be like, mommy. And then like instigate a conversation for another person because I am a part of a herd immunity situation. Okay, so that's how I feel. But I was talking to a coworker and I was like, I've noticed that sometimes clients notice my armpit hair and I think maybe it makes them uncomfortable and maybe it's worth getting rid of my armpit hair for because I don't want to make other people uncomfortable. And she was like, oh, I never noticed your armpit hair, which was really nice and maybe untrue, Mm -hmm. but it was really nice. But then I was like, what do I care? You don't. I don't. And so that's like a big thing. That's like a sacrifice where you feel uncomfortable. You feel put on the spot because of the choices you make. But I think I am choicing out my choices so that later generations don't have to, right? Like I'm normalizing floofy armpit hair in the United States. You know, what's really funny about armpit hair as a Greek person. Person who grows body hair indiscriminately is how I would describe it. The first time I encountered a human being that was a femme-bodied person who had armpit hair was at Greek Fest. And all the altar boys were like, get a load of her! She's super Greek. She's like straight off the island. They don't do that there. And I was like, they don't do what? Shave their pits? Like, what the fuck are you saying about her? Also, she wasn't fucking born on ISOs. She was fucking born like here in Chicago. What the fuck is your deal? Fucking assholes. And like, that was my first introduction of like what it was to meet young men's opinions of female body hair. Mm -hmm. And like, she was super great. She like, you know, was slinging Dolma like nobody's business. Well, she was like a human being who just right, like, doing her job. <laughs> like, and also like she was next to like all of these fucking hairy dude Greeks. Yeah, in the same exact tent. So yeah. like, what's the deal? It's not a deal. It's not a deal. The patriarchy told me it was a deal. Exactly. Via the altar boys. These altar boys think that they have Ass a right host. to an opinion about right. a woman's armpits. Which then like tried to like, you know, constrain and then moderate me. Because if I wanted to be a true Greek woman, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Gross. And also, like, it's so much work. It's so much work. It's so much expense. 
Yeah. The patriarchy is expensive. I choose when I feel like shaving my legs. Preach. RWA. <laughs> Those are our thoughts. Stop shaving your armpits if you don't want to shave your armpits. If you don't want to shave your armpits, don't do it. If you don't want to shave your legs, don't do it. If you don't want to shave your pubes, meet us in Colonial Williamsburg in October. We'll see you there. We'll be churning butter. You'll see us with the sickest biceps on the ground. Boop, boop. Talking about the problems of colonization. Boop, boop. People forget about that, but America was a colonial <laughs> oppressed people before we were a colonial power. Oh, let's remember America's original Started from the bottom, now we're here. Now we're here 400 years later. Puerto Rico, sorry. <laughs> Looking at you, kid. Ooh. Ooh. That's my RWA. Same. <laughs> <laughs> Mwah. Mwah.